Jagat Guru Manatma Yeah. 
ईश्वर अंश जीव अविनाशी चेतन अमल सहज सुख राशि सो फर्स्ट स्टेप इन अंडरस्टैंडिंग दिस इज अंडरस्टैंडिंग वी आर अंश ऑफ गॉड नाउ व्हाट डज दैट हैव टू डू विद डिजायरिंग हैप्पीनेस The next step would be to understand that every ansh naturally desires their anshi. So if you could imagine this were a clump of earth, a clump of dirt that I'm holding in my hand, a lump of dirt. You could say this is the ansh and the earth is the anshi. and now they're separated the anch is separated from his anchi but the only reason he's separated is because i'm holding him separated if i simply release what happens is automatically pulled the anch is automatically pulled i didn't throw it i released and the anch was pulled to his anchi rain which falls each droplet of water which falls from the clouds is originally from the ocean so the ocean is the anshi and each droplet of water is an ansh and what happens when the water rains down on land in the mountains it all starts moving together into forming little streams and rivers and each one of those drops of water moves towards the ocean and it doesn't stop until it rejoins the ocean in other words each one of those anshs is trying to join with its anshi so there's a natural love between the ansh and the anshi that's the nature of the ansh it's attracted to its anshi therefore since we are ansh of god every soul is automatically attracted to god This still doesn't explain why we desire happiness automatically. So for that we need the third step in this logical chain, which is that desiring God and desiring happiness are one and the same because God is defined as Satchit Anand. All of our scriptures call God Anand. Anando Brahmi Dibhyajana. Taittiriyopanishad says he is Anand and Anand is what? Perfect happiness. So now it makes sense. We are an Ansh of God who happens to be the very form of happiness. So since the Ansh is attracted to his Anshi, the souls are attracted to God or you can say the souls desire happiness and that happiness actually is God. it means that even an atheist desires god but the mind doesn't accept or doesn't realize that happiness and god are one and the same in fact you could say none of our minds realize that we call ourselves believers in god but according to our vedas the moment someone has true faith in god really believes in god god is there in front of him astitevopalabdhavyas tatvabhavena chobhayo astitevopalabhasya tatvabhava prasidati kathopanishad as soon as we become astic astic means someone who believes in god as soon as we become an astic god is there in front of us So we are technically all gnostic <laughs> because we don't have a hundred percent faith in God. Part of our mind is not believing in God. Part of our mind is saying, "Oh yes, all our saints and scriptures are saying <clears throat> that happiness is in God, but I think happiness is in the world." So part of our mind accepts God and. a major part of our mind doesn't a, ma- a major part of our mind says that i can't see him i have no proof of his existence i want to believe in him but i don't 100% believe in him and the world is right here in front of me i can see it and touch it and enjoy it immediately 
So our mind is more attached to the world and actually has more faith in the world than in God. This is natural because we have more experience of the world than of God. But this is why we need the help of divine scriptures that can explain to us and educate our mind in what we have no experience of on our own yet, but we want to get an experience of. God is one such thing that we have no direct experience of yet, but we want that experience, so we have to rely on the teachings of our scriptures and our great historical saints. And they tell us that God and happiness are one and the same. This week, as I describe meditation, we'll be learning how to gradually increase the percentage of our surrender to God. Gradually increase our belief in God. This is what we'll be learning this week. Today we have a few more basic philosophical points to cover so that we, our mind, you know, we have to have the whole idea of meditation in the proper context. So we'll finish with that today, and from tomorrow we'll have a little more time to actually discuss the practical aspects of meditation, how to do it, troubleshoot meditation so that you can find, you know, where you're having trouble, how can we solve those problems. So, we understand that the scriptures are telling us God is perfect happiness, and that perfect happiness is defined as sat-chit-anam, which you could say is the chemical formula for God. Here in this world you can analyze everything down to a chemical formula. Well, we have a chemical formula for God as well. Substantially he is sat-chit-anam. Anand, as you know, means bliss or happiness. But not as a feeling in the mind. I'm telling you substantially. So just like um, sugar or honey is the very form of sweetness. Sweet, the sweetness and the sugar are not two separate things. The sugar itself is the embodiment of sweetness. Similarly, God himself is the embodiment of Anand. He is substantially happiness. And that happiness is further defined as being Sat, which means that it is true happiness, which is everlasting. The happiness of this world is not considered Sat, it is considered Asat. Asat means fake. Now, we experience it in our mind, so we could certainly argue that if I experience it, how can it be considered fake? Everything is relative. If you have uh, a diamond and a piece of coal, technically it's the same thing, right? The diamond is just the coal that was subjected to much higher pressure and it became a diamond. Technically it's the same thing, but if you hold this and you hold this, you'll say this is real and this is fake. Similarly, divine happiness is like that diamond. It's the real thing. And the happiness of this world, well, it's something. That piece of coal is not nothing, right? It's something, but compared to the diamond, it's fake. So compared to divine happiness, the happiness of this world is called asa. It exists in our mind, but not as a substantial thing. Just take water. Is there happiness in water? It really just depends how thirsty you are, doesn't it? If you went on a hike in the sun the whole day and didn't drink any water, then at the end of the day, when you get your hands on a glass of water, that water will give you a lot of happiness. But if you just drank down a liter of water, and someone puts the same glass of water in front of you, instead of getting happiness from it, you'll get unhappiness from it if you're made to drink it. So how could we say that there's happiness in the water? 
In fact, even when you were very thirsty and you started drinking the water, the first gulp gave you maximum happiness, and the second gulp gave you less happiness than that, and the third one less than that, and you kept drinking until the happiness went away, completely stopped. Then there was no happiness left in the water. So that simple example proves to us that happiness does not exist as a substance in anything in this world. If it did, we could get the same amount of happiness from the same thing all the time. Take another actual quality of water. It's wet, right? When it's in its liquid form, it's wet. It's wet for everybody all the time. It doesn't matter how much water you pour on your head, it never stops being wet. It's wet for me, it's wet for you, it's wet for everybody. It doesn't matter what mood you're in, what time of the day it is, who you are. So that's a fact. But the happiness in an object is not a fact in that way. It is completely dependent upon the state of our desire for that object in that moment. And the more we interface with that object, the more our desire starts to reduce and we start to get bored of that very same thing that was giving us happiness. <coughs> then we have to move on to something else. Later we can come back to that thing when we've had a break and our desire has had a chance to build back up for it. Then we can again enjoy it. But there's no stable happiness in anything in this world because happiness does not exist in any person or anything. It only exists in our mind. It's a creation of our mind. Take a person. Maybe the first time you meet a stranger, you don't feel anything positive or negative towards them. Then you start spending more time together, they're no longer a stranger, they become your friend. You start thinking about all the good qualities this person has, you dwell on them in your mind. When you're away from them, you keep thinking <coughs> about that person. And the more you think about the good qualities of that person, and the more you think of that person giving you happiness, or you think about the possibility of that person, the hope that this person will give you happiness, that process of positive thinking in the mind is developing an attachment to that person. Then the more the attachment grows, automatically a desire to be with that person keeps coming in the mind in the same extent as your attachment to that person, which is in the same extent to the amount of thinking or chintan you did about the person. So through your repeated thinking about the person, you created the attachment which wasn't there on day one when you met them, when they were a stranger. So you created the attachment, because of that attachment, a desire dwells in the heart to be with that person. Then when you are with the person, when you first meet with them, you experience the same amount of happiness in proportion to your desire to be with them, which was in proportion to the attachment. In other words, we created the experience of happiness. Now the same person that when you had met, when they were a total stranger and you felt no happiness in meeting with them, now when you meet with them, you feel happy. Why? Because you created that experience in your own mind. I'm not telling you it's wrong, I'm just telling you the way it works. The same thing can be reversed. You can start dwelling on the faults of that person that used to give you happiness when you met with them. And you can become so negative towards that very same person that now when you meet them, instead of getting happiness from meeting them, or instead of being neutral, now you feel unhappy when you meet them. What happened? You reversed your thinking. That's it. So, both the experience of happiness and unhappiness that we get from people or the objects of the world, that experience is a creation of our own mind. So this is why it is not considered to be real happiness.
But divine happiness is not a state of mind, it's an actual divine substance. So when you join your mind with God, you receive that divine substance. You can say a power. Power and a substance in the divine world is the same thing. Just like matter and energy is the same thing in this world. So God gives us that divine power, which is divine happiness. So that's a permanent, stable situation. Once you get that divine happiness, whereas the happiness in this world, it's always very fleeting and temporary. That divine happiness is also called chit. Chit means that God himself is alive. He's a divine being. He's not just a, an energy. In this world, everything, all the objects of the world, are just called jar. Jara means they have no life, they have no mind, they have no consciousness. Whatever has consciousness has a soul. So the soul, because it is there, the body appears to be conscious, alive, chetan, but it's not actually. When the soul leaves, then the body returns to its normal jara state. All the material things are jara, but God is chetan. So even that divine happiness is chetan, it's a life, it's a real live power, a real live thing that you unite with. So there's a big difference between material happiness and divine happiness. And since every soul is actually divine and chetan and eternally related to God, so the soul can only be satisfied by that divine anand, not by any brief experience of material pleasures, which excite and agitate the mind, but do not reach the level of the soul. They are experienced just on the superficial level of consciousness. That's material pleasure and material happiness. Whereas divine happiness actually reaches your soul. It's related to your soul. This is important to understand. This is why we say the true goal of every soul is to reach God. After all, we are his anch and he is our anchi. We're eternally related to him. So our soul wants to join with God. Plus, he happens to be the actual form of real happiness. And since we want happiness, we can actually get that happiness only by reaching God. The things in this world make us feel happy. But not on the deepest level, and not forever, and not in an unlimited amount. And only when we get unlimited, everlasting happiness, which is related to our soul, will we be perfectly satisfied. And that is only possible when we reach God. So now we understand, at least intellectually, why the goal of a soul's life is to reach God. I also explain to you that it's the mind which is important. When we're talking about will we get happiness from this world, will we get happiness from God, what will we do, everything is decided by the mind. Atma nagvam ratinam vidhi shariragvam ratham evatu buddhim tu sarathim vidhi mana pragraham evacha Indriyani hayanahur vishayan steshu gocharan Atmendriya mano yuktam bhokte tyahur manishina Vigyana sarathiryastu mana pragrahavan nara sodhana paramatnoti tad vishno paramampadam 
Kathopanishad describes our whole personality. That we are technically the soul, but soul itself doesn't do. It's the mind which is the doer. So in this description, it is told that our human body is like a chariot. And the soul is the owner of the chariot who sits as the rider in the chariot. There are some horses pulling the chariot, five horses. Those horses are our senses. And the path being trod by the horses are the objects of the senses of this world. There is also a driver of the chariot who's holding the reins. The driver is called buddhi, our intellect. And the reins are called man, our emotional mind. So the driver is our intellect who is supposed to be directing, holding the man, the emotional mind, and that guides the activities of the senses which pulls the body in a certain direction and all of that determines which way the soul goes. This chariot has been given to us in order to reach our home. Our home meaning God. But we can only reach our home if the mind, if the intellect is educated that where is home. If we haven't been educated that God is happiness, you want happiness, you have to surrender your mind to God. If we don't know that, then we'll be doing what we have been doing for many, many uncountable lifetimes. We'll be chasing happiness in this world because the world is easily accessible to us. And we won't be able to understand why even though we repeatedly enjoy the things of this world, why we still fail to feel satisfied. We can't explain that. But if our mind is educated through correct spiritual knowledge, then the intellect understands, oh, okay, this is why, because these worldly things are jara, they're material things, no material enjoyment can give ultimate happiness, it only gives temporary pleasure. True happiness is in God. Okay, let's turn the chariot this way. And then you go towards your true destination. But who's driving? The mind. The soul is the passenger. Soul gives life to the mind, but it's the mind which decides happiness is in this or happiness is in that. So everything depends on the mind. This is why our scriptures say, Mana eva manushyanam karanam bandhamokchayo. Mind alone is responsible for both bondage or liberation of the soul. If you attach your mind or you, your mind is educated and it goes towards God, so it becomes attached to God, then you become liberated. And if your mind doesn't have this knowledge, then it continues to create more and more attachments in the world, and we multiply our bondage. Bhagavatam says the very same thing. Everything rests upon the mind. So this is why, when we talk of attaining God, and everyone probably does some devotion to God in their life, some bhakti, we must do that bhakti with the mind, not just with the body. I told you yesterday that doing devotion to God physically without having the mind engaged in thinking of God is called anasanga bhakti which means that the mind isn't engaged somewhere else, but we're physically doing some worshipping formalities, whether it be chanting God's name, or doing a pujan, or any other form of worship. That does not result in the mind developing towards God. 
If the mind is somewhere else, how is it going to develop towards God? The mind itself has to become attached to God. And that attachment only happens when we engage our mind in devotion to God, not just our body. You can think of it this way. There are many types of Bahiranga Bhakti, Bahiranga Sadhana. Bahirang means external. There are many forms of external devotion that we do with our hands and feet and eyes and ears, but there's only one form of internal devotion. That's when you remember God. So, Antaranga Bhakti, Antaranga Sadhana, Antaranga Upasana, that can only be done with the mind. You can't do that with any other sense or any other body part. Sometimes people say, Oh, let's go to the mandir and listen to the katha. Listen to the stories of God. Listen to the philosophy about God. My ears will get purified from that. It's a way of talking, people say. Like, if you do seva in the mandir, they say, Haat pavitra ho jate, sharir pavitra ho jate. Your hands get purified, your body gets purified. It's fine, nothing wrong with that. However, it's the mind that we have to purify. We can also purify our body with soap. You can have a shower and wash it. But soap doesn't reach in here. The only way to purify our mind is by bringing God into our mind. And the only way to do that is actually by meditating on Him. So this is why out of all the different ways that we can worship God, worshiping God with our mind should be first and foremost. The other things that we do are also good. All the other forms of devotion are good can be practiced, should be practiced, but should be practiced with this in mind that these are only meant to help me keep God in my mind. They're helpers. They, just on their own, without the engagement of my mind, are not complete. And, truly speaking, if you are worshipping God with your mind, and you choose not to do physical, any physical form of devotion. You've already done all the forms of devotion just by worshiping God with your mind. But most of us like to have some helper. We like to sing some kirtan along with remembering God with our mind. We like to do the arti or do some pujan along with thinking of God because it helps us to remember God more. But the essential thing, the prime thing, is that the mind must be engaged in thinking of God. So of all the forms of devotion, we call it smaran, remembering God, or chintan, thinking of God, or we call it rupdhyan, meditating on the form of God. This is the prime devotion, the prime bhakti. Meditation is a way of joining our mind with God, so it's a tool on the path of devotion. But there are also many other ways to meditate, aren't there? You have probably, all of you sitting here, have probably tried various ways of meditating. And they would all be considered spiritual. But not all of them have the effect of joining the mind with God. See, if the mind is not joined with God, how will it get purified? God is like pure water. And our mind is like a cloth which has accumulated a lot of dirt over uncountable lifetimes. That has to be cleaned out. If you're thinking, I don't have dirt in my mind, then ask yourself, do I get angry? Do I feel jealous? Do I feel... Envy, greed, hatred, of course, we all do. This is the evidence 
that you know, if our mind is producing those kinds of thoughts, then it means the state of the mind itself is polluted. If the mind were pure, it would produce pure thoughts. So we do have some cleaning to be done in our mind. The other evidence that our mind needs to be purified is that the mind, even if we want to, cannot have a hundred percent faith in God. It's blocked by its own impurity from having a hundred percent faith in God. So the only way to reach that state of a hundred percent faith is by purifying the mind, and the only way to do that is by joining the mind with God or by meditating on God. So God is like the pure water which is going to wash away all the accumulation of impurities in our mind. But not every form of meditation is for joining the mind with God. This also should be carefully understood. There are many kinds of meditation which will give you a nice feeling of relaxation. Like, let's say someone wants to relax, so they close their eyes and they just breathe deeply and they bring their awareness to their breathing. Nothing more complicated than that. Breathing in, breathing out. That will relax you very quickly. It will relieve a lot of tension. But by awareness on your breath, is your mind attached to God? No. Does that mean breath awareness is a bad way of meditating? No. We just have to be conscious of this fact that different meditations give different results. That's all. We shouldn't think that all things are going to lead to the same place. They're not. There are other meditations which are done to actually develop the psychic potential of the human mind. Because we all have latent powers in the deeper levels of our mind. We call those powers siddhis, yogic siddhis. And they can be developed through certain meditation practices. It's possible. But are these siddhis the same as joining your mind with God? Again, the answer is no, because these siddhis are actually material powers which reside in our material mind, and God is divine. You don't even have to meditate on God to develop these powers. There are other techniques for doing that. So if we're doing those other meditation techniques and we're developing yogic siddhis, it doesn't necessarily mean that our mind is becoming more attached to God. There's a great example from our history of a great yogi and tapasvi, Vishwamitra. He had such great yogic powers that he could create a new swarg. Swarg could be called heavenly abodes or celestial abodes in English. It's not the divine abode of God, it's just a higher material abode. God's divine abode is beyond all material energy. But within this material field, there is all there are some higher abodes that we call swara. And those can be attained by doing a great amount of good actions in this life, by following dharma. But it's also a temporary attainment. You get in a limited period of enjoyment over in swara, and then you come back here and start again. So there was a king named Trishanku. Trishanku wanted to go to Swarg now. He didn't want to do a lot of good actions and then wait until he died and get to go to Swarg. He said, I want to go to Swarg with this body right now. He went to Sage Vasisht. Vasisht was a great divine personality, a God-realized saint, who told him that, no, that's against the rules. I can't do that for you. That's not the way it works. So Vishwamitra, who considered Sage Vashisht to be his rival, although Sage Vashisht did not consider Vishwamitra to be his rival, but Vishwamitra always felt jealous of Sage Vashisht, that he was such a great God-realized personality, and he felt that he wanted to be at that level. 
So he said, oh, King Trishanku, I'll send you to Swart right now to show to Vashishth that he had that power. So using his yogic power, he started sending Trishanku, he went up, and he was heading up, and he was sending him to Swart. And Vashishth saw that, and he said, no, this cannot be, and he used his power to bring him down. And then he stayed right there in the middle, not going up, not going down. So Vishwamitra said, okay then I'll make him a, you're not letting me send him to Swarg, I'll make him a new Swarg right there. And he had so much yogic power, yogis can actually manipulate the material energy and elements. He created a new Swarg for him right there. That's how much power he had. Yet the same Vishwamitra, one night, is found outside the hut of sage Vashishth, holding a dagger in his hand. He's snuck up to the hut, he's fed up. Tonight I'm going to kill him, I'm so tired of being number two to his number one. And as he approaches the hut, he hears sage Vashishth in the dark, lying, <laughs> not yet fallen asleep, talking with his wife. And his wife asks, who is the greatest yogi? Who is the greatest tapasvi in this world right now? Sage Vashishth said, oh, it's Vishwamitra. Vishwamitra was amazed that he would be praising him. But he said, but if he could just get over that one thing, that anger he's got, if he could get over that, then that would be a great thing. Vishwamitra saw himself, <laughs> look at me, I'm outside his hut, ready to pounce in there and kill him, and he's praising me, but pointing out this fact that I have so much anger. So he went, he knocked on the door of the hut and presented his dagger to Sage Vashishth and fell at his feet and told him why he had come, and that now he was surrendering to him, and would he please grace him. The point of that being that even though Vishwamitra was at such a high level that he had such powers we can't even imagine, and no such yogi exists in the world today with such powers, yet he was still under Maya. He was under the material power because he still had all the defilements of maya, anger, jealousy, hatred, just like we have. As long as someone is under maya, they have all of those mental problems that can only be removed through devotion to God. Tulsivasji says, people suffer from so many mental afflictions. A person can die from even one physical affliction, and yet we are suffering from uncountable mental afflictions. Nonetheless, we are alive. It's amazing. How can those mental afflictions like anger, greed, hatred, etc. be removed? He says, they're asadhya. There's nothing that can cure them. Nema dharma achara tapa yoga yagya japa dana bhesha japuni kotina kariya hujana jahi hariyana no amount of good action, no amount of yoga, no amount of austerities, no amount of intellectual study, no amount of charity. He's saying all these are great good things, but even they do not have the power to fully purify the human mind. There's only one thing. Raghupati bhakti sajivanamuri Devotion to Raghupati, devotion to Sri Ram, devotion to God is the only thing that can purify the heart. The same thing is told by Sri Krishna in the Bhagavatam. He says, 
धर्म सत्यदयापेतो विद्या Great good action, great dharmic actions with truthfulness and renunciation or even great knowledge and austerities. These things, nasamyak prapunati, they cannot fully purify the heart. What can? He says, Mad Bhaktya. Only my devotion can fully purify the heart. Katham Vinaro Maharsham Dravatava Chetasa Vina Vinananda Shrukalaya Shuddhid Bhaktya Vinashaya. Also from Bhagavatam. He tells that until your heart becomes attached to me or until I come into your heart and your heart melts in remembering me and you actually cry tears to meet me and you feel a thrill in thinking of me, until that happens, how will your heart be purified? It can't be. Bhakti punati However, he goes on to say that if someone does do devotion to him with their mind and attaches their mind to him, then even the most impure heart can very quickly be purified through true devotion to him. So, we understand that meditation is not just meditation. There are different ways of meditating. They're all good, they all will give some benefit, but they all may have different goals. So we have to understand what is the goal of this particular way of meditating, what benefit will it give me, and understand that meditating on God is a very specific way of meditating. Many times I say, talk meditation to people and they say, oh, I've done meditation before, but they haven't done that specific form of meditation that I'm teaching. So this form of meditation that I'm teaching to you this week, which I learned from Jagat Guru Shri Kripaluji Maharaj, my Guruji, this is specifically for purifying the heart by meditating on the actual form of God. Tomorrow, I'll lead you through a guided meditation to help you get the idea how can you actually meditate on the form of God. And I'll also answer the question, why the form of God instead of meditating on formless God? Because God also has a formless aspect. So why can't we meditate on formless God instead of the personal form? This is a question that many people will have, so we'll also address that tomorrow. Uliye Ladali Lal Ki